Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the Common English Bible version, which will be found on page 7 of the Worship Bulletin. So, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. Because of the grace that God gave me, I can say to each one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Instead, be reasonable, since God has measured out a portion of faith to each one of us. We have many parts in one body, but the parts don't always have the same function. In the same way, though there are many of us, we are one body in Christ, and individually we belong to each other. This has been the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Chad. So for our sermon series, we have been looking at the opportunity to juxtapose some modern versions of Paul's list of bad fruits with also the ideas of living into the timeless list of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 5. We've thought about this from the ideas of, say, social media and how we know that social media can at times bear bad fruit for us. But to be able to juxtapose that with self-control. How do we develop self-control in our lives as a good and positive fruit? Last week we thought about the aspect of hostility in our world and in our own kind of lives and how we could trade that for the good fruit of kindness. This week we're going to think about what it means for us to leave behind judgmentalism so that we might be a people that inhabit gentleness in our lives. So let's make a a quick distinction, give a, a quick definition so that we are on the same footing on this, right? To exercise judgment is one thing. To exercise judgment means that you hold someone accountable to a standard that you yourself did not set, right? So uh, and a simple example would be you're driving down the street, you don't have your seatbelt on, you get pulled over and you get a ticket for driving without your seatbelt on, right? It's not a standard that the police officer created. It's the law of the land, right? And so you're being held for a judgment of a standard that we should all kind of live by. Same thing with the Ten Commandments. We agree that those are God's laws for us to live by. It's a standard. We exercise judgment in exhorting one another to live by those things. Judgmentalism, on the other hand, is a little bit different. Judgmentalism is the practice of thinking ourselves morally superior to someone else and thus able to condemn them when they do something that we don't agree with. So you could think of it this way. You cursed in front of me. That makes you a bad moral person. That's a judgmentalism, right? Or your skirt is too short, which means you're an immoral woman. That's a judgmentalism, right? Or your hair is too long for a man, which means you're no longer the image of a clean-cut, athletic, kind of good citizen man. Those are judgmentalist kinds of ideas. They are our standards that we want to push on other people and we judge them for them. If you think about judgmentalism, I think one of the outcomes of it that we might all agree upon is, is that judgmentalism has a tendency to stifle. Stifles creativity, stifles conversation, stifles 
potential. A Washington Times opinion writer said this. He said, being judgmental is not a viable strategy for encouraging others to change. Actually, judgmentalism raises our level of injurious invictiveness. There's a new word for you, right? Your $5 word for the day, invictiveness. It never convinces the other that your righteous way is the right way. Judgmentalism. If you think about it, judgmentalism really has the ability to cause others to simply give up and go away. It doesn't further a relationship. It actually can hamper many relationships. And it can suppress potential. Judgmentalism very rarely lifts up potential in another person. I'm going to share a story with you that comes from the 1800s. In the 1800s, the art scene in England was controlled by what was called the Royal Academy of Arts. Now, the Royal Academy of Arts in the late 1800s was controlled by 40 middle-aged white males, or what you might call the proverbial good old boys club, right? 40 white men controlled the Royal Academy. To be inducted into the Royal Academy would solidify your place in the art world in England. You became one of the go-to artists to have your works commissioned, especially if one of the nobility wants a painting done. They would go to a Royal Academy arts member and they would ask them to do the painting for them. It basically would assure your ascension to wealth and status within English society if you were a member of the Royal Academy of Arts. Now, every year, the Royal Academy of Arts puts on an art show, and so they ask artists from around England and beyond to present one of their works, and then they select the ones that they want to see hung, primarily in what's called Burlington House near Piccadilly, and then some subsequent kinds of other galleries as well. And so various artists would enter their art pieces, and they would be then judged by the 40 members of the Royal Academy of Arts. And then the Royal Academy would pick out certain ones, and then they would hang them in Burlington House and the other galleries. If your art was hung up real high and in a back gallery area, your art really wasn't all that good, right? The place that you wanted your art piece to be hung was in Gallery 2 of Burlington House on what was called the line. Nobody goes into an art place and wants to look up real, real high at the ceilings to try to view art. You don't want to look down real, real low to try to view art. You want to view art that's right here, eye level, or what's called the line. Right? In 1874, a female artist named Elizabeth Thompson submitted a piece that in the brief title is called The Roll Call. It is a portrayal of British soldiers during the Crimean War, and they were being called to attention for a roll call into into a kind of a loose formation. They weren't really in a strict line. They weren't well-polished, good-looking British soldiers. No, they were kind of a ragtag bunch that was in a loose formation in this portrait. According to the experts, the, the painting captured the heart and the attention of the public in London because the artist was able to capture the enduring bravery of the British soldier. That's what came forth from this portrait. Elizabeth Thompson's work was selected for notoriety in that moment because she was hung in Gallery 2 on the line for all to see. 
They said the crowds were so loud coming to see this portrait, they had to hire police officers to keep the crowd back from the portrait, to keep them from pressing in on it. It gained so much notoriety that after the art show was over, that painting went on a national and an international tour, and it became so popular that Queen Victoria started bidding against one of her lords to see which one of them was going to be able to buy it. And the queen won. And it became a part of the royal collection and part now of the royal trust. Elizabeth Thompson was promoted to instant notoriety and fame. And the Royal Academy decided that maybe it was time that they inducted a female into the Royal Academy of Arts. They were being progressive in 1874 to think of this, to welcome a woman into the Royal Academy of Arts. She was considered to be a shoe-in by most of the members that had spoken to her and told her that they were going to bring her into the Royal Academy. And so the day came for them to hold the vote, and Elizabeth Thompson, the shoe-in, missed being inducted into the Royal Academy of Arts by two votes. All of the members that had voted for her told her, apply again next year. Send another painting next year. You will be certainly welcomed into the Royal Academy of Arts. She did. She submitted another painting that year in 1875. It was the 28th Regiment at Quatre Bras was her painting. And it did not even make the line in Gallery 2. Actually, it did not even get selected for any of the galleries for it to be displayed. And Elizabeth Thompson's name was not brought up for election into the Royal Academy of Arts. She tried one more time, six years later, 1881. She submitted to the Royal Academy what is considered by the art world to be her most famous and prestigious painting. It is titled Scotland Forever. It is a beautiful painting. It's a mix of the Royal Scots Greys and the British Heavy Cavalry. It is a scene that is the start of the charge at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Wonderful portrait of horse and riders. The title of the painting comes from the battle cry of the Grey soldiers. They would yell out, Now, my boys, Scotland forever, as they charged into the battle. It was not selected for display. It did not make it into Gallery 2 on the line. It actually did find itself being displayed in a secondary gallery in Egyptian Hall, but it was barely noticed, barely viewed. And for the next century and a half or so, it just changed hands between various families until it was donated to the Leeds Gallery. And again, the Royal Academy of Arts passed Elizabeth Thompson by. And did not bring her up for induction. Elizabeth Thompson married. She married very well. She married Sir William Francis Butler. William Francis Butler was a distinguished army officer who traveled the empire in service of the crown. She would now find herself traveling with him. And they had six children together. Sir Butler decided to write a 600-page autobiography about his life. I guess he really didn't have much to say about himself, right? 600-page autobiography, right? In it, he mentions that he was married. And he mentions that he had six children. But he never mentions that he was married to Elizabeth Thompson, the famous English painter who almost was inducted into the Royal Academy of Arts. 
You think about how we use judgmentalism, the power that it has, and the power that it has to sometimes relegate even the brightest, most talented among us to the shadows, how it can suppress the potential in others that are around us. In American society, we believe in this social phenomenon called human or talent capitalization. It is the rate at which any society capitalizes on human potential. All of us have heard the ethos, the saying in our culture, that you can grow up in this country to be anything you want to be, even President of the United States, right? We've all heard that said. We believe that we are a great society because we excel at capitalizing on human potential. But do we really excel as a society on capitalizing on human potential? There's a commercial I'm sure most of us have seen. It's from Southern Hampshire, New Southern. New Hampshire University. The speaker, I think, is, the, is probably the president of the university. He's given a commencement speech, and he says that the world evenly distributes talent, but it does not evenly distribute opportunity. My personal opinion is, is that often opportunity for us has fallen prey to judgmentalism in our country. And we continue to struggle in the area of human capitalization because opportunity is not equitable for all in our society. And yet the church, we believe the church is supposed to be a place that, that does something different, that bucks the trends that are around us. We're supposed to be a place that is fasting from things like judgmentalism, so that we might be able, through things like gentleness, promote the potential that is within every single human being. If you think about the scriptures for just a moment, I think the scriptures are eloquent in their portrait of who God is. God who is one that favors the meek, the humble, the gentle. You can listen to the, the scriptures of the psalmist and Isaiah and you will find elements in there where it speaks of God who listens to people who are humble and gentle, and God who responds to them. And we also believe that we are invited to become like Christ in this element as well. In the words and the actions of Jesus, we see one who is himself humble and one who promotes humility as well. For one who is gentle and wants us to be gentle in who we are as well. And we know that Christians should be marked by the fruit of gentleness as Christ was gentle. Paul commands this. Paul recommends this. He's appealing to communities of faith. And in particular, the Romans. He says, have your minds and your lives transformed by Christ in such a way that you give away the things of the world so that you might receive the things of God. Might give away the ways of the world so that you might live in the ways of God. That your life might be transformed in such a way that it be marked by, of many things, humility. Meekness or gentleness. Because we believe that gentleness has greater power than judgmentalism. Has the power to lift up others so that they might reach their fullest of potentials. On Wednesday morning I was, I was watching on Facebook Live the service that was for the Reverend Billy Graham. and They were bringing him into the Capitol building, the Rotunda, and what Statuary Hall Area And they were going to um, place his body to lie in honor. And I was watching that for a few moments. And then I saw the military pallbearers bring him in and lay his casket down. And for the many people to take a moment to pause and reflect over, over Reverend Graham. 
If you're familiar with Facebook Live, though, while uh, it's up and streaming, it gives you the opportunity to comment as a viewer, right? So you can type something in, and then all the other viewers will be able to see this as it scrolls by. Now, lots of people took an opportunity to offer wonderful words of prayer and thanksgiving for Reverend Graham's life and for his witness. I was surprised, though, a little bit to see the number of people who were using injurious invictiveness in their comments, were very judgmental about someone they never even met. I never had the opportunity to personally meet Reverend Graham. 1967 was his first crusade here in Kansas City, Missouri. I was six years old. My parents evidently had other things to do because they didn't take me to the crusade. But, and then in 1978 when he came, it was my junior year of high school. I'm pretty certain I probably found an excuse not to go because I could have thought of something else. In 2004, he came back to Kansas City. I never had an opportunity to go to one of his crusades live. I did see them on television. And I've seen multiple other things, other interviews of Reverend Graham. My impression from afar of Reverend Graham is, is that by all outward appearances, he is one who bore much fruit of the Spirit in his life. Again, my impression is that those fruits, among the many of those, one of them certainly was an air of gentleness that was about him. Now, maybe it's a combination of his North Carolinian upbringing and that antebellum southern culture steeped in politeness. That could be part of it. But I'm going to lean towards the wonderful, marvelous, and matchless grace of God that was present in his life. And for the glimpses that I saw of him, To see those fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control come forth and, in his presence, gentleness. I think gentleness is important in our world, dear friends. A very important ingredient, a fruit that is much needed today. To be reminded that God treats us with gentleness. That Jesus' life and ministry were marked by gentleness. That the best way to oppose your enemy is with gentleness. The gentleness embraces others in spite of their faults. A gentle person knows better than to harm others. A gentle person does not seek to make others angry. Rather, gentleness, it may lose its battles, but it helps win in the overarching struggles. We know that the proverb says that a gentle word turns away wrath, and a gentle response tends to create fewer enemies and more friends. In my humble opinion, what the world needs now is not more invective rhetoric. It needs more gentle responses because gentleness empowers potential. So I hope you hear the invitation today to come and fast from judgmentalism wherever it might be in our lives because we all know that it has no life-giving quality to it at all. Instead, come and feast on the fruit of the Spirit that is gentleness because gentleness grants life. Life more abundant for you and for others. It can help all of us reach the potential God intends for us. So here's what I hope you take away from this morning. I hope we all know and probably have experienced in our lives the effects of a critical, judgmental person that's been there, how they might have stifled some things in you, and how maybe even in some ways you've done that to someone else. To to hear that God calls us to respond 
to others in gentleness. He calls us to be a gentle person, to let that fruit come forth in us. That Paul encourages us to have our hearts and our minds transformed so that the actions that we bear are the actions of Christ, that we might be gentle. Because gentleness has great power, has the power to encourage others to reach their potential. And I believe it's one of the noblest things that we can do as a representative of God. So here's your invitation for today. Who's the gentlest person that you know? And what are the characteristics that come out of them that you could emulate in your own life? Or to think of it this way, is there someone in your life that maybe has been judgmental towards you or you've been judgmental towards them? And how can you now trade that in, fast from it, and begin to respond with gentleness as the fruit of the Spirit? Charlotte Bronte wrote in her classic novel, Jane Eyre, these words. She said, Oh, that gentleness. How far more potent is it than force to live in the fruit of the Spirit of gentleness. I would invite all of you now